I want to ask you, have you noticed that you seem to run out of stuff maybe a little quicker than you used to? Are your biscuits disappearing faster? Well, it may not necessarily be that you are consuming more. It may be the phenomenon of, wait for it, shrinkflation. And this is where producers shrink the product instead of raising the price. And apparently it is a rampant uh, practice that is going on at the moment. So to, to tell us more about this sneaky way of raising prices is the Irish Times columnist and consumer expert Connor Pope. Hello there, Connor. How are you doing? Hi, Barbara. How are you getting on? I'm getting on all right so far, Connor. Every day is, you know, another day down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Don't be looking at it like that because once they're all run out, you'll be like, what will we do then? I know, yeah. I know. Stop. How do we get here? Listen, um, tell me about what this is. What is this shrinkflation all about? Well, I suppose shrinkflation, first off, it's not new. Oh. The word is quite new, but the actual concept is very, very old. I mean, you could probably go back to Roman times and you would have had bakers artificially inflating the size of their bread and trying to sell it at the same price as as the previous bread to try and make more money. And that, Mm. in essence, is what shrinkflation does. You make the product smaller and you keep the price the same. And it has kind of gained traction in recent times. Now, the word actually only goes back to 2015, the word shrinkflation. New word. Uh, So it's a relatively new word, but as I say, the concept is very old. And it is, as you say, rampant. Now, in a period between 2012 and 2017, according to the Office of Statistics in the UK, around 2,500 products got smaller in the UK, uh, but the prices stayed the same. And since 2017, I think we can probably speculate that the problem has become even more pronounced because as all companies and as all retailers and indeed as all consumers are dealing with the cost of living crisis, they are looking at ways to cut corners. When it comes to cutting corners, a retailer or a producer, in essence, has a couple of options. They can make the price more expensive, they can make the product smaller, um, or they can change the ingredients in the price. Mm. Now, or change the ingredients in the product. Now, if you make the product more expensive, people might be able to afford it or they might turn their backs on this or indeed they might switch from a branded product to a known brand product. Mm. And if you change the ingredients, people might just go, listen, I don't like that. Mm. And they might switch away from the product. So uh, for a lot of companies, the preferred option is you make the product smaller, uh, you keep the price the same. And in effect then, you're, you're, you're increasing the prices, it's just that we don't notice it. We don't notice it. And I think most of us, when we think of this practice, would think of goodies like biscuits or chocolate bars. I think there was the famous case of the Yorkie being, you know, used to be the big chunky bar for big men who drove trucks and then it got smaller. And I suppose in the back of a lot of our heads, we kind of go, oh, you know what, now my bar of chocolate is smaller, so that's probably good. It's like having reduced fat or reduced sugar. We kind of go, I'm still getting the bar, but I'm not eating as much. So do you think that kind of lets away some uh, producers with this practice because we don't really give out about it because in our head with some things we think oh that's probably better for me yeah well maybe but maybe we shouldn't and the other yeah. reality is that it's enough, it's not just the Yorkie bar or the Toblerone or the packet of buttons or the packet of uh, chocolate McVitie's or whatever it might be it's, it's products that people buy and need to buy so you're looking at products like baby formulas you're looking at products like shampoos you're looking at toilet paper, you're looking at kitchen towel, you're looking at cleaning products, juices. All of these products get smaller and the prices stay the same. So like a very well-known brand of smoothie, for instance, would be the Innocent Smoothies. Fine nice. product, makes good product. It used to be one litre, now it's 900 millilitres. Nice. Um, and, you know, that's a 10% price hike, but it doesn't 
come across as a 10% price hike. And when you think that this is happening up and down your supermarket aisles all of the time, um, it becomes incredibly difficult for consumers to spot the changes. Like, if, if, if the box stays the same... yeah. And I think this is one of the problems that a lot of people will have with it. The box might stay the same. And all that changes is the little weight uh, indication on the bottom. But a lot of us, like we're all hard pressed, we're stressed Mm -hmm. out as we go about our weekly shopping or do pop into the shops by whatever it might be. It's hard to to navigate that. And I remember back when I was like in short pants, back when I was almost in nappies, Barbara, (laughs) there was a time when the price of a pint now, I wasn't drinking pints. I was going to say, how did you know cross, that? Crossed the threshold of one pound, right? So this right. is the early 1980s. And the price of a pint went from 98, 98 pence to one pound. And like it was headline news right. on right. RTE at the time. And that's why I remember it. Because I remember going, Jaypress, that's loud. like that's big news. So all, all, of these retail, all of these publicans had an idea that instead of having a pint of Guinness or a pint of Heineken or Harper or whatever it might have been, they were going to offer 500 millilitres of Guinness. And that way you could keep the price the same. Under, under, the, under the pound. And people rejected that out of hand. They didn't want that. Um, and so that was what inflation was like in Ireland in the 1980s. But now it has just become commonplace and it's very hard for people to accept. Do you think that, that um, manufacturers should be forced to label their product if it has changed um, that they should be forced to draw our attention in some way to the fact that this now contains less than it used to contain well I was talking to a professor of economics in DCU called Edgar Morganroth and he had a good idea that retailers should at the very minimum be forced to change the size of the packaging right okay so if you're going to take your shampoo from 500 millilitres to 400 millilitres you need to change the size of the bottle yeah you don't just need to take 100 millilitres of shampoo out and leave air. the bottle the same size because <laughs> then you're just buying air. Yeah. If you were to do that, well, then at least that would, it would give manufacturers pause to, thought, to think because they'd say, OK, well, not only is our product going to look smaller on the shelves, we're also going to have to redesign our product. And there's so a cost involved. Cost yeah. um, but otherwise, it's just, as, as you say, something of a free-for-all. Now, the other option would, like, there's two ways of looking at it. As you say, Okay, well, uh, you know, uh, if my bar of chocolate gets smaller, well, that means I eat less chocolate. Yeah, and you know, there, there is an argument for that, and I'm certain, I'm sure, like a lot of producers and retailers would be delighted to hear that argument. <laughs> and you know, and, and the other option is that, like, what's better? Is it better to increase the price to make it unaffordable, or make the product smaller but maintain the price? That way, at least I can buy it. So yeah. let's just pick the example of the biscuits. Let's say there's a particular brand of biscuit that I love. And they cost a euro. And I can only afford to pay a euro for the product. So if they go to one euro ten, I can't afford You're it out. anymore. Yeah. Or, but, so maybe, it would, maybe I actually benefit from two or three biscuits disappearing from the product, but it stays at a euro. Because it means that at least I can get some of my product. Yeah, yeah. So it's not, it's not a black and white thing. But I guess the bottom line is that what people would be looking at would be transparency. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just inflation by stealth. And I think that's what people really struggle to deal with. It's a snaky practice, in other words. It's a snaky practice. Too snaky. Too snaky by half. Can I ask you another question that's kind of linked and not really linked? Uh, But I think you were writing about this recently. The costs of... We've all seen how the cost of fuel is going down. Um, (laughs) And I'm I'm laughing to myself because I know my husband goes, oh, look, the cost of fuel has come down and I make the same 
same joke every time going, oh, I always put 50 euros in and it's still 50 euros. Anyway, it's not funny. <laughs> and he doesn't think it's funny either. No. No. Anyway. Uh, it's not the worst joke I've ever heard. But yeah, no, yeah. Care. I think it's the fact that I say it every single time just to yeah. melt his brain, which does work. Anyway, but the cost of fuel coming down, do you think that's going to lead? Because we've seen, like, as well as the shrinkflation, costs are going up and anybody who does the weekly shop will know that. Will know that your shopping trolley is costing a lot more now than it did a year ago. Do you think that, that that's going to have an impact on grocery prices? Can we look forward to maybe them coming down a little bit? Well, the short answer to that question is it absolutely should. Now, those mm. figures out this morning from Kantar, the retail analyst, and they're pointing to a 16.8% jump in prices on groceries this uh, the, up to the end of March compared to wow. the same period last year. 16.8%. Now, God. based on their maths, that means that if you were if the same shop at those prices spread out over a year is more than €1,200 more than it would have cost two years ago. So that's a staggering price increase. And all the way through the cost of living in crisis, the retailers and the producers and the manufacturers have been saying, oh, well, transportation costs are going up, energy costs are going up. And yes, they were going up. Mm. But the reality is that a a litre of diesel or petrol that cost €2.05 or €2.10 at the height of the crisis in Mm. March or April or May or June of last year now costs around €155, €160. So that's a £0.40 per litre decrease. Now, when you think that an articulated lorry has around 1,000 litres of fuel in it, that's a €400 decrease in the cost of filling an articulated lorry. So the question is, when are we going to see those decreases passed on to consumers. Reflected in our prices at the supermarket. Exactly. Connor, you are an absolute font of knowledge and information um, and uh, that was all very, very interesting um, and, and, and giving us and giving shoppers a little bit of hope at the end of the day that perhaps exactly. we will start to see. Uh, but to be aware of things getting smaller, keep an eye on those numbers, very important. Connor, listen, Absolutely. thanks a million uh, for taking the time to talk to us today here on Late Lunch. Really appreciate it. No problem. Mind yourself. Take Thank care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, the Jack and Jill Children's Foundation is an Irish children's charity that uh, funds and delivers in-home nursing care and respite support for children with severe to profound cognitive delay up to the age of six. They also provide end-of-life care for children up to the age of six, irrespective of the diagnosis. Their mission is to empower parents to care for their child at home. In Meath, Jack and Jill supports 11 families and six in County Louth, with a total of 174 families supported in these two counties since the charity was founded in 1997. Fundraising, however, is vital as Jack and Jill must raise over €6 million per annum to keep these services, these vitally needed services going. So, I'm going to talk now to Helen Reddy, who was mum to Mwiran, who would have turned 23 this year. And Helen, after marking what would have been Mwiran's 21st with a charity swim, that swimming fundraiser has grown in popularity and has now become a national swimming campaign called Dip a Day for the Jack and Jill Foundation. So to tell us more, I'm joined by Helen now. Hi, Helen. How are you doing? Hi, Barbara. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, Listen, what a fantastic kind of um, tribute to you and to your daughter that this thing that you did to mark her 21st has now become a national campaign. Tell me what it is that you're looking for people to do. So we're looking for people to take a dip a day or a dip on any day in April to support Jack and Jill to um, join our little Facebook group or join through the uh, fundraising page. There's there's no there's no fee as such to join. You just um, in 
email them and say you're going to do it, they'll send you out a hat. There's one iDonate page. Just take your dip, you know, share the iDonate page and tell people that you're doing it. Take it in your bath, take it in your swimming pool, take it in the lake, the river, the <laughs> so sea. You- so and I'll be doing all of those except the bath one. I was going to say, yeah, taking a bath, even I could do that. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. I can't. My, my grandson is going to do the bath. Is he going to do the bath? Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Uh, so you're looking for people to either join in with a, with an organised group already or yeah. um, and have the sea swim or else, to, uh, which would be better again, for somebody to organise a group themselves and register with the Jack and Jill Foundation as an actual a new swim group, if you like, just no, to even no, do one. No, they can just go straight in and and. and register on their own and then we have a dedicated Facebook page for the dip a day and people are rolling in and saying I'm swimming here and say okay we'll be down on this day and we'll join you Brilliant so I, I normally swim in Port Marnock I have a group of swimmers I swim there most days and 7 o'clock in the morning and these um, we would go and Sorry what? There, Sorry what? 7am? 7, 7 yeah Holy yeah. God So you people are, are working and People work and, um, you know, they they have to head off. The weekends were a bit later, maybe eight and ten, maybe on a Sunday. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. So you, you know, it's the, you catch the most beautiful, beautiful sunrises when you're down in Port Marnock. We Unfortunately, we didn't get it on Saturday. Well, we got a little one, but it's just stunning. Fabulous. And come here, are you now a regular sea swimmer or do you just do this once a year for the Jack and Jill Foundation? No, no. Um, we, I kind of got back into the water after a while and I was walking up and down the beach as I would and I got back in with the help of my sister and my friend. I must have been stung years ago because my mum and dad brought us all swimming to rush for years and years and then I stopped. Right. So I got back in in 2020 um, that was Murren's 24th, so we found we'd swim so many days in a row. We said, right, we'll go 100 days in a row for Jack and Jill. Wow. And then it wasn't wasn't near our birthday, so we said, look, let's swim. My son actually captain, let's swim 1K for J&J, and that was um, closer to our birthday week, and we did that along the beach in Port Marnock that, that day. Right. And, and would then, you swim, you'd swim in the winter as well, would you? Yeah. Would yeah. you? Yeah, we'd get in in the winter. Not some. You don't always. We wouldn't. It might be less time. Obviously, to spend in the winter because you, you know you can't stay in for that long. Yeah. And tell me how you, I know a little bit about this because my daughter sees, again, it's not really a swim, as you say, in the winter. I call it a sea dip, but yeah. she does it all year round. Um, tell me about what it does for you, both physically and mentally, that getting into the cold water in the winter. So the cold, there is a shock. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's you know, when you're getting in at first, you're kind of counting and you're waiting for it. It is cold. People always say, oh, it's lovely when you get in and when you get down. And it actually is because sometimes it's nicer in the water when you're kind of swimming around because when you get out, there could be a wind blowing down the beach or, you know, it might might be lashing rain on you. But when you get out, your skin is like red. This kind of the, the, the winter tan. But you just feel, I, I feel great. Maybe everybody wouldn't. But then it's not just the swim. The people, the people that I've met swimming down at the shelters regularly, we've just become a group. And there's so much. It's a sense of community. You know, there's always, you know, somebody, somebody might come down and might be having a great day. Yeah. Some people in recovery. There's people are down there because they've lost somebody, and we all just kind of get together. There'll be birthdays, and um, Carmel actually came down one morning on a Friday morning, and I had committed to doing. A dip for December with a guy called John Lally so I was actually in the water at seven because that's the time he had decided to do his dips and um, I knew she was coming and I just said to the group look there's a lady coming down um, she's she's going to talk about a dip a day um, we'll just watch out for 
went into the water. By the time I came back out, Carmel was sitting down with two or three of the girls. They were having tea and they were sitting chatting. So they just <laughs> take her in. So the camaraderie, the camaraderie yeah. is brilliant yeah. as well as the... Because yeah. people have described to me, my daughter has described to me, that you get this almost a high, like a rush of endorphins yes. and a, a great feeling of well-being once you, once yeah, you get in the water. 100% you do. Once you get in and when you get out and you're tired and you're sitting there and you're going, oh my God. Yeah. You mightn't, you mightn't have loved it at the time when you were in there. Yeah. But when you come out and you kind of go, oh my God, that was just brilliant. Yeah, I wish I was that brave was enough. I wish I was brave <laughs> enough. I find you know, Carmel said she didn't think she was brave enough and she came down and she did a Saturday yeah, yeah, yeah. morning. I find yeah. it even hard. Like if I get into the sea here in Ireland in the summer, I think I'm a great woman altogether. You know what I mean? When it's 24 degrees on the few days that it is 24 degrees in the summer and I think I'm great altogether. But uh, yeah, I know everybody I've ever spoken to about sea swimming says that the it, that the the rush you get the high you get afterwards is just incredible. Yeah, I'd like a bit of is, that. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, um, tell Helen, tell me also then about how uh, the Jack and Jill Foundation. Why is it so important? And I did did you receive help from the Jack and Jill Foundation? I did. Yeah. So in two thousand, I was pregnant on my fourth child, and uh, she was a planned home birth. It didn't go as planned, and I ended up in the return to having an emergency section. And Miriam was born, and she had severe hydrocephalus. And basically she was given a terminal diagnosis, but they couldn't tell me when it was going to happen. Mm, and God. they just said, look, she's really sick. She's, she's not going to last. Um, she was intubated. So we said, OK, you know, we'll, let's see how she goes on her own, because kind of I didn't really want her on a machine for the yeah. rest of her life if that yeah. was going to be it. So she was intubated. We, we took the thing out. She, they, we called all the family in. She was baptised waiting for this big drop to happen and yeah. it didn't happen. And then I was in hospital for a week after the section and I was like, okay, what happens now? And they said, well, we, we can't explain why she's here. She is here. There's nothing medically we can do for her. And I said, well, then can I take her home? You know, she has a brother yeah. and two sisters at home and a dad and family. And and they said, well, yeah, you can. And then this lovely social worker came in and she told me about Jack and Jill. So off we went home with Maren, um and... Uh, we brought her home and their nurse came for, I guess it was three over three weeks. The nurses came in the night time and they'd look after Mirren through the night. Right. And she was fed through her nose. You know, we didn't yeah. know if she could see or if she could hear. And her, the fluid was still kind of accumulating in her head. She wasn't a candidate for a shunt. So her head was kind of getting bigger. And, you know, she she had basic functions of the brain. So they would come. Kathy was the first nurse that we had. And... Um, I remember the first night she came and I was kind of going, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, yeah. you know, I'm going to look after my baby. But I just had this glass of wine that every time I turned around, it looked like it was full. And then I was shunted yeah. off up to bed and then got up the next morning and Warren was still here and Kathy was here. And so it allowed Pat and I, because, you know, Pat eventually had to go back to work. Yes. Kira, Dara and Aoife were quite small. So yeah. they looked. They still needed looking after, so I was able to look after them through the daytime, and then the nurse the at night time we got a good rest. Yeah, yeah, and those must have been very precious days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point you would have said, "What is going on in the house over there?" Because people called every single day. Those people sure. coming to see her and to talk. You know, her Isn't nanny came wonderful? over from Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She went out to a softball game. She went up to my mom's, mom and dad's house in Bingless, and we had a kind of a get together. Because um, wow. I kind of kind of said to my mum, you know, when she goes, she's going in Auntie Peggy. That's my dad's sister. And my mum was like, "All right, okay." Yeah. And she said it to my cousin, and he said that was fine. So they came to meet her, and That's then towards the end, then you could see she was what they, she would kind of 
catch her breath and stop breathing. And Cathy, the nurses were able to tell me, look, it's not going to be long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the, the morning of, the day before, she said that, you know, Helen, we're really getting to the stage. So the morning of, I got, got up quite early and I had to shower and I came down and I was sitting on my couch in my front room holding my beautiful baby in my arms when she went. And she left. And oh. she left. And I wasn't waiting on a hospital to call me yeah. and say, look, we're sorry, you have to come in because your baby's gone. We held her. You held her. And she was at home. She was at home that's in my That's important. Arms. Yeah, that's so important. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Fantastic. And I can't put a price on that, Barbara. No. I get to that sense of not peace but just like oh my god I'm glad I had her here it's the I'm sense of the right thing into a hospital yeah sure yeah. oh yeah. look Helen thank you so much for taking the time to share that story with us um, and the best of luck to everybody who gets involved in Dip A Day more information is on the website uh, for Jack and Jill and you can also uh, check out the Facebook page that Helen mentioned also the Incognito Art Exhibition is also now running and that's online and a local artist Fiona Breheny has a, a, a piece of art in there so all of that you can find out online to help the amazing work of Jack and Jill Foundation. Thanks again to Helen. Andrew, welcome back to Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully in again for uh, Jerry Kelly. Right, there was a, um, a really interesting article in the Sunday Times, not last weekend, I think it was the weekend before that, which was headlined, Help, is it wrong that I don't like my kids? And it began by stating that, and I quote, it is supposed to happen naturally and is considered to be one of the most meaningful relationships. But what if the parent-child connection is not all it should be and the parent simply doesn't like their child? It is rare, but it does happen. And to help us understand some of the reasons as to why this might happen, I am joined now by Joanna Ford and child and family psychotherapist and News Talks parenting expert. How are you doing, Joanna? Good, Barbara. Lovely to talk to you. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you indeed. How are you? Are you well? Doing good, yeah. Good. It's just Easter, beginning of the Easter holidays, enjoying the lack of traffic out there. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Tell you, when you go beyond the school days, you've no idea about it's stuff great. like that. You forget <laughs> as to why there's no traffic. Anyway, yeah. this article that I was just referring to there was, was very, very interesting. Um, and what what is interesting is, the, which I know you were quoted in the article a lot yeah. about the reasons as to why this might happen. But before we go that, is some of the problem that we have um, been fed a ridiculous expectation as to how we might feel about our children when we become parents? Oh, there's no doubt at all. And I think... So much of that preparing to be parents journey is not actually focused on you, the parent. You know, it's about, you know, you're trying to conceive, you're you're attending to the pregnancy. Then it's about birthing the baby and feeding the baby. And it's, it's quite far in that someone says, what about you? What about the parents? And it's quite easy for parents to feel lost in that journey, in that transition. And I don't think we speak about it enough. You know, that transition from moving from being the child of a parent to the parent of a child, that's a huge psychological transition. For many of us, now, Barbara, you do that and nobody says, gosh, well done now managing that transition. <laughs> it's <laughs> really true. something we notice when it's not going well rather than when it is. And there's so many reasons for this. So while this is, like you said in the opening there, a relatively rare phenomenon, in my line of business, because I do a lot of perinatal and infant mental health work, I do see 
presentations like this, I do see people who who really deserve a safe space where they can exhale some of those fears, those anxieties, and being able to say something that is quite unsayable in yeah. society. And Joanna, is this is this completely separate to women who may feel postnatal depression and maybe after the birth of their child not have that rush of love that everybody tells you that you're going to experience? Is this a different thing? It is really because you may have no postnatal depression or postnatal psychosis or postnatal mental health issues in that regard. And it may be that it's more to do with how you experienced being parented and how you are now reactivated with some of that unresolved stuff by being a parent. Like I've often said, and you've probably heard me say it, that there's no better way to discover your own unresolved issues than to become a parent because it will bring stuff that you have either buried or you haven't looked at or stuff you might not even have been aware that you were carrying screaming to the surface because our children are of us. And that can be very confronting. A lot of what we look at in this comes back to attachment, you know, that that connection to to a key caregiver in our early life and then honestly throughout our lives we've multiple attachment experiences but in our early life our primary attachment experiences with our key caregiver whomever that might be but if you are somebody who is insecurely attached yourself and you may not know that by the way you know you may not ever have had a reason to confront that or put a label on it but what we notice is a parent who might be carrying an insecure attachment within themselves they can be happy when their child is happy. So we don't see a depression per se, um, but they struggle with their child's negative or distressed emotions, likely because they are struggling with their own. And that can be a reactivation of sorts, you know, because yeah. if, if you're insecurely attached, you have an activated attachment system. So being in the presence of a needy child, and all children are needy, that's not a psychopathologizing, but it can make you feel needy yourself. So it can bring up a range of emotions that you're ill-equipped to deal with and you can feel overwhelmed. And And that's just one of the reasons. There are others that this can happen. And I presume, Joanna, that this can happen at any stage during a child's life. Like it may not be something that you are confronted with as soon as you have a baby. It may be something that does that bubbles up to the surface as the child gets older or maybe even as a young teenager. Would that be correct? Absolutely. And it can be, you know, in that phase of initial separation when your child is beginning to discover they can manage themselves to some degree um, in the world without you. And it can actually feel quite abandoning for some parents who might be struggling with that and say, oh, my gosh, they don't need me anymore. Equally, it can be that, you know, your child might have a trait, a behavior trait, something about them physically or emotionally that reminds you of somebody else in your life. And then it's about how do you feel about that other relationship and what might be getting displaced onto this one. So sometimes it's not a case. Now, I, I wouldn't say this all the time, but sometimes it's not a case of I don't like my child. But when you actually drill into that and say, okay, let's go deeper with this, what transpires is I don't like what is activated in me by my child's behavior. Yeah. So it's not actually the child they don't like. Exactly. It's, it's and, about themselves. Exactly. And a parent who is who is struggling with this, by the way, it doesn't mean that they're not providing mm. good functional care. That child may be perfectly adequately cared for, but it's the over and above. You know, so there, and we all have basic needs. We need to be fed. We need shelter. We need, you know, safe places to live. We need clothes. We need to be brought to school. And all of that might be happening perfectly well. It's the other stuff. It's the emotional connection 
connection. It's that capacity to make meaning of your child's behaviour and giving it back to them. You know, we, we call it, you know, mentalisation. But really what that is, is a capacity to manage your own emotions in the context of your child's emotions. So when my child is getting upset or angry or irate about something, that I don't match that by getting upset, angry and irate as well because they can't co-regulate rage with rage. That actually is something that, you know, we want to say, okay, you're angry about this because you can't go outside because of whatever reason. But, you know, it's it's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to throw things. The next time you're angry, do this. And then you're giving back to your child. Of course, you're angry. And this is why the reason you're throwing is because of all of that. But let me give you something else you can do. That's how you make meaning of your child's behavior and give it back to them. A parent who struggles with that will experience their child's behavior in very concrete literal terms. It will be, you're pushing my buttons. You're trying to get a rise out of me. You're doing that to show me up in public. It tends to be experienced as a persecution and a judgment. I remember a friend giving me advice when I was struggling at one stage with um, uh, one of mine who was a teenager, young teenager. And I remember this friend saying, and it really helped me. She said, it's not personal. Stop taking it personally. Yeah. And I it thought that was... So personal, it though, can feel so personal though, you're in ex- the trenches. Yeah. Absolutely. And what you just said there about pushing your buttons. Um, yeah. I used to go, how does she know exactly what to say or do that will make me explode? <laughs> um, and, you know, it was when I learned to stand back from that and realise yeah. it wasn't personal, um, that it did help help. So going back to parents who have that realisation then that like, you know, they're struggling and they don't like their children. I presume that will make most parents feel a level of shame and they will find it very difficult to actually look for help or deal with that in any way. That has definitely been my experience Mm. as a clinician is that by the time somebody presents looking for help, this isn't a new sensation. Actually, it's been going on a long time. And what tends to happen is the child is presented for treatment with a symptom that the this child child doesn't listen, this child is defiant, this child is rejecting me, this child is doing. And a key part of how I work is in a very joint parent-child way and looking at the caregiver-child relationship as the catalyst for change. So I will always look and seek to strengthen and enhance that connection. But to do that, it's about understanding what is working, where are the areas that need support and you know what we all have areas that we need support in at varying levels so there's no shame in that but often if the the unspeakable truth is I don't like this child and I as part of my work with parents I will invite that even if it's not actively there I will say you know when was the first time that you realized you loved your child Mm. and do you still love them Mm. and it's really to give, it's okay to say things in here because if it can be said, then we know where we're starting to work with. And I, often, I mean, there'll always be an exception to the rule, but most often it's tell me the story of that feeling. Give me an example of when that feeling came up and you were really aware and what does lie behind it is something is in you to be activated within this relationship. And if we can interweave that with narrative and bring that to the surface, actually it clears a pathway for connection with parent and child. That's really interesting. And I'm assuming that if this is the case with, with a with a parent-child dynamic, that the parent doesn't like the child, as you say, or because they're being triggered by something perhaps in their past, will the child be aware of that? Because I always think children are way more savvy than we often give them credit oh, for. They, and they're sponges for yeah. the emotions that us parents give off. Like your child can look at you 
by the way you fry or close the fridge and they know the mood you're in. Yeah. Like we all give away way more than we think we do and our children are looking to us constantly. That's part of the the overwhelming pressure of parenting. Our children are always looking to us for their social, emotional, behavioural cues. Like if you bring your child to a new environment where they're out of their comfort zone, the first thing they'll do is look to you and if yeah. you're also anxious, they'll be like, oh, it's even worse than I thought. But <laughs> if they look at you and they see oh, no, you're, you're happy here, you're smiling, this must be a good place, and I trust you that you're not going to leave me somewhere unsafe, so I'm good to go. And I can take maybe a tentative step forward, but I, I know that if you think it's okay, it must be okay for me. So our children do pick up. Now, they may not, and depending on their developmental age, they may not be able to say, hey, I'm feeling a little bit rejected by you right now. Might there be something going on? So what they will use is behavior as yeah. a way of express, expressing that emotional dysregulation. So if I feel rejected by my parent, that's very shame activating for a child because to feel like you're a disappointment to the person you love most is very shame activating. So then what we tend to happen is the child acts out of their shaming which in turn activates the parent's core shame. And it's like tossing a hot potato of tension back and forth between yeah. you. And what happens is everybody gets burned. Yeah. So a lot of it is your child may develop overt behavioral symptoms that will prompt you to say, gosh, there's something wrong here. I need to get my child help. And in doing so, you realize who's bringing who to therapy, that actually it may be the relationship that requires that work and that strengthening. And it is really about saying, not that I say don't be shamed because you know that's not how it works yeah. you know but acknowledging somebody's shame and saying okay but if this is a safe place to bring that shame this is a safe place to exhale it and a lot of us won't feel like we can do that with our friends or our family members who may or at least we perceive we'll be judge. shocked by yeah. us saying that and say gosh you know that's so strange everybody loves their children yeah. and actually love and relationships are far more complex than that that's right and i've always thought just because you're related to somebody doesn't mean any you know doesn't doesn't guarantee anything if you know what i mean absolutely in a case like this um joanna then is it likely also that um this kind of thing would affect the relationship between a couple as well because obviously if one yeah. partner is sensing that the other partner is off beam somewhere in their relationship with the child does it often cause friction then with you, with your partner as well? It can and it can also manifest in one relationship. You might have two or three children, you might right. have more and it's one child that you struggle with and that can be particularly difficult because everybody can see what's happening and it can lead to family scapegoating where one child becomes the container for the family's projections, issues we all evacuate our icky, uncomfortable feelings into this one child who absolutely won't let us down and will develop the symptoms we want. Mm. Um, but actually, it's not about that child. It's who and what they represent in the family unit. Within the, the couple dynamic, it can be that, what's wrong with you? You can't do this. And the ideal, Barbara, in the short term, medium term, is that the other caregiver can step up, step in and compensate. And what any of us need in our life is one good enough caregiving parenting relationship. It's not ideal, but it's good enough. Okay yeah. is okay. And especially if it's a, I can take it on this, I will make sure this child's emotional needs are met. And what I need from you is that we work on this. This works well when as a couple, you can communicate what's happening. Yeah, yeah. When you cannot, this goes beneath, just bubbling beneath the surface for a much longer time and this family might be later. It could well be 
tricky adolescent behaviour that then is the catalyst for a therapeutic referral. But actually, it stems much deeper. Yeah, gosh, that's really that's really good. And it's bringing us right back to what we said at the beginning about unrealistic expectations. Okay. And I know it's one of your mantras is that yeah. good enough is good enough. We don't all have to be perfect parents doing everything Absolutely. perfectly and, every know, day. And, and it is okay to sometimes say, do you know what? I don't think this is good enough. I'm actually not reaching good enough. Yeah. Because to know when you need to bring in support is a huge strength in any relationship, but the parent-child relationship in particular. This is not supposed to be this natural, instant thing. If that's been your experience, wonderful. There is a story you've had that has made that happen yes. for you. But we are all the product of some parenting ourselves, and some of us manage to negotiate that, but not unscathed. And we may need and deserve some space to work that through. Yeah. Are we getting better, do you think, as a nation in looking for professional help, um, whether it's in regard to parenting or anything else? I think we are, for sure. I think it's much more normalised to say, gosh, you know, got to go to therapy. And what we tend to see, though, is it's harder to, these areas are still taboo. This idea of I don't love my child, I don't like my child, that it's very hard to say that because even in a field of having, it's easier to bring my child to therapy for their anxiety than my not liking them. So sometimes that's not, the overt presenting issue, if you know what I mean. It's, I it's not that someone says, hey, I need a referral for this reason. It might be, I need help managing my child. And it's in the course of that work and that journey that this other truth emerges. Yeah, you're brilliant. As per usual, I could listen to you talk all day long. You're such, uh, you've always got such great insights and such down to earth advice that everybody can, I think, um, relate to in one way or another. Oh, so, thank you. Well, life is complicated enough. We it is. We overcomplicate talking about it. Yeah. It, it is, it is. But it's great to know that there's people like you out there offering the kind of help that many of us, I'm sure, will need during the course of our parenting or our lives or our relationships in one way or the other. So listen, thanks a million for taking the time to Pleasure, talk to me Barbara. today. Thank you I so very much for having me. That was Joanna Fortune, family and child psychotherapist. And if you want any more information or to get in touch with Joanna, her website is solove, S-O-L-A-M-H dot com. And you can check that out there. And that was the Black Eyed Peas. Right, we've got some nice competitions for you this week. Um, first one is uh, LMFM, along with the Arc Cinema, are hosting a private screening, how posh, of the Super Mario Brothers movie in the Arc Cinema in Drogheda on Wednesday, April 19th at 6.30pm. Now, if you're not familiar with the Mario Brothers movie, it's about a Brooklyn plum- plumber named Mario who travels through the Mushroom Kingdom with a princess named Peach and a mushroom named Toad to find Mario's brother Luigi to save the world from a ruthless, fire-breathing Koopa named Bowser. Imagine that. I mean, who wouldn't want to go? So if you and a friend would like to go along for free to one of the best movies released all year with thanks to the Arc Cinema Andrada, you can enter by sending us a text or a WhatsApp with Arc Cinema followed by your name to our usual number, which is 86 one eight hundred six five eight, and that is the Super Mario Brothers movie. That sounds like lovely. A private screening. You'd feel like a, a rock star going along to one of those. Now, I just want to come back for a moment to um, the conversation I had with Helen Reddy about the swims for the Jack and Jill's Foundation. I should have mentioned that there is one. The one in Meath is at 9.30 on Thursday, the 6th of April. That's this Thursday in Beckdiff in County Meath. And again, as I say, more details on their Facebook page there. Now, as I mentioned, we're giving away all kinds of things 
things this week. Um, so that we also have obviously been the week that's in it and the run up to Easter, we have uh, an Easter egg hunt. And all this week you want to, we want you to join us on this virtual hunt with some cracking Easter goodies up for grabs. So what we've done is we have hidden some virtual eggs at well-known locations around the North East. And each day, across all our shows, listen out for the clue to discover where these eggs are hidden. All you have to do then is to head to the location, take a selfie and send it to us again on WhatsApp 086 1-800-658 or via our social media channels. Every day we will have a hamper filled with Easter goodies up for grabs. So here is today's clue. Today's hiding place is in Trim, County Meath. It's a popular wedding venue for couples. The movie Braveheart was shot here and it dates all the way back to 1172. So can you guess where our virtual egg is located today? Good luck with that and enjoy the chocolate. Now, don't go away because after the break, I am going to be talking to a woman you won't want to miss. This woman is a powerhouse and her name is Dr. Mary Ryan and she is going to talk to us about her new book, which tells us it's probably all about our hormones. Don't go away. And you're very welcome back to Late Lunch with me, Barbara Scully, in today. Now, I met my next guest last autumn when we were both on a panel around Waitley here, Sex and Wellness in Ennis. Um, I was kind of the light entertainment end of the panel and Mary was the serious science end. Um, so I was... I was blown away by her positivity and her energy and I was delighted to realise then that she has just published a book which is called It's Probably Your Hormones. Um, Dr Mary Ryan is an endocrinologist and a seasoned contributor, it must be said, across media and now is the author of this great book. Mary, how are you doing? I'm great, Barbara, and thank you very much for coming to the launch last week and Hodges figures you were amazing. Thank well, you so much. Well, I have really to appreciate the support. I have to say it was one of the classiest launches that I've ever been to. <laughs> and I go to a lot of book launches with a harpist and then you even sang. And I, I don't think there's been many authors who've done such a beautiful rendition of Danny Boy as you did at the launch in Dublin. Uh, thank you, Barbara. It was thank wonderful. You. We, had, we had a launch with the difference, as you said. It totally yeah. was a launch with the difference. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I, lo- I haven't read all of the book, but I've started to dive into it and I have a queue of daughters behind me waiting to get their hands on it of as well course. because this is a great book for women isn't it? It is yeah I suppose many years ago I, I tried to link everything together so hormones control everything they control our muscles we forget we're skeletons covered in muscle and that hormones control all our muscles all our organs and they control our immune system and I think in particular um, as women we forget that we, we're very hormonal and we need to understand what we mean by that so like from the age of 12 right up to beyond menopause we have four major hormones circulating all the time because of periods and mid-cycle and so forth and if we don't recharge that hormone control centre the way we should do, then the hormones are in chaos. So people forget, for example, that if hormones are off, you can have aches and pains in the muscles, you can have headaches, you'll have irritable bowel. Uh, if your hormone control centre is not recharged right, you your cortisol level is off and therefore you're emotional. Um, if hormones are off, you don't go into deep muscle relaxation, you don't sleep right. So all of these things are interlinked. And of course, if your hormones are off, you know, the immune system um, becomes unstable. It can attack the thyroid or any other organ. But if you get antibodies to the thyroid, you'll get underactive or overactive thyroid. So the big thing was to see the link between uh, what we can do for ourselves and have good hormonal health. And I don't think people realise that. People never meant the link, for example, with the, with the phones, that the, the LED, the blue light of the phones really interferes with melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. Uh, women forever keep going, Barbara. And by keeping going, they're getting loads of adrenaline being pumped out. But 
that dis- destabilizes their sleep, but also destabilizes melatonin. So it was to try and educate people how they could best look after the hormone health. So when I say to people they need eight hours sleep, they really do. They need to recharge their phones uh, at night, but they also need to re- recharge themselves just as much. And in particular, somebody who's extra busy, who's a really chaos day, which is all of us now, we all need to, to recharge to listen to our bodies, which are terrific um, at doing the whole regulation of only let them do so. And as well as that, eat healthily. And, and take time out for ourselves because that really helps our hormonal health. And I suppose that was the message I was trying to get across in the book because it was wonderful that, you know, I started the whole menopause, perimenopause story along with Lorraine Keane there eight years ago and that was brilliant and we got that across. But I wanted to do more than that and really make women and men understand what hormones are about how they could, by looking after themselves, have better hormonal health and take charge of their own health, really, by doing that. So that, so that really was the message. I mean, and that's one of the things that blew me away when I was at your launch and when I heard you talk before, is that hormones, I think as women particular, well, first of all, I think there's a thing out there that people think that hormones, only women have hormones. That's Do you know right, what I mean? It's her hormones and it just yeah. makes us slightly mental. Um, yeah, and I think true. that, you know, and that it's all around our reproductive biology. But as I think what really fascinated me was that hormones you've just you've just mentioned it there can be at the root of a whole load of stuff that could be going wrong with us not totally. just the obvious stuff related yeah. to heavy periods or yeah. menopause or any hot flushes or anything like that. Absolutely. Like so for, for boys and for girls, acne is a big problem and that's all down to hormone imbalance, obviously as a result of, of hormones around puberty. But, you know, if any of us get stressed or overtired, we can have acne even in our 20s, 30s and 40s. Um, so there's a whole lot of hormonal things that, that can happen as a result of hormones being out of balance. Men can get irritable bowel just as much, much women can. If men over do it um, like women they will have difficulty sleeping uh, I think what really opened up the whole thing was the, the long COVID syndrome we were dealing with that I, I was amazed at the interest in long COVID because as endocrinologists we've been dealing with chronic fatigue and ME for quite some time our patients would come in and classically they'd be a man or a woman or a, a young um, teenager yeah. who would have been overdoing it really conscientious with the leaving cert working really hard and as a result their, their uh, hormones went out of balance and they might have got lantern fever which completely whacked them. The same thing as long COVID and as a result they're just exhausted they're not depressed, it's not in their head, it is a real condition and eventually they do do well with, with, with lifestyle advice and treatment. But I suppose it was just that, you know, the long COVID resurrected the whole thing again, but I, I felt like saying, well, we've been dealing with this for, for a long time. But because ME and chronic fatigue, a lot of those patients weren't listened to for quite some time and, and weren't treated well and were fobbed off as being depressed when extract they weren't. Yeah. And they, they do extraordinarily well with, with life style advice and with treatment but it's just a total hormone imbalance that occurs as a result of uh, being run down getting one of these infections that totally wipes them well, and, and that's the reality yeah I loved um, also your dedication on the on the front of the book which I which says I would like to dedicate this book to to Manana Heron and all the women who have been so unnecessarily misunderstood about their hormone health yeah 
Yeah, I think, you know, the one thing I remember Dr. Tony Humphreys, a great psychologist, said everyone has a story and everyone does have a story, Barbara. And I suppose the beautiful thing about uh, being a doctor is that you get to hear the private stories and the real stories uh, and not the social media stories. You know, yes. they're the real stories. And I suppose the suffering I would have heard about, you know, women, for example, who uh, suffered seven day periods, eight day periods, um, you know, being given a hot water bottle, told to lie down on the floor yeah. and, and not dealt with and, and that made me angry hearing about that and that's why I wanted to sort of make, make a change and, and I can't see everyone so the only way we can make a change is to educate people I did that with menopause well that's why I went out to educate everyone because I said if I don't if I just educate doctors but don't go out and educate the public uh, then we're not going to get the, the buy-in and change the narrative and allow women and men to be educated about what really is going on and the amazing thing is that menopause and perimenopause you know that's been around since Adam and Eve it's only now in the last eight years we're talking about it which just shows you that, that there wasn't um, a perspective on, on women's health and now thankfully that's changed but I think by giving women the initiative and sort of changing the the subject and getting rid of the shame and saying yes. there's no shame at all let's talk about it um, but also we, I, I want not to leave men out of it as well so I, I think put a little thing on erectile dysfunction because that does upset a lot of men uh, the lack of libido and men and women they still are all shy about talking about it so I, I really hope that in bringing this book out that we'll just bring things out into the open these shouldn't be people shouldn't be ashamed of them it's something it's a very natural phenomenon libido and sexuality and it's just to bring that out in the open and you know that's what makes uh, evolution and the rest of the generation survive so it's something that should be uh, really spoken about in a very very kind way and compassionate way and patients should feel that they can come in and talk about it so mm. that, that's what I'm hoping to do this is what it's I love about you. To do that this is what I love about your approach because you do take this very holistic approach and I think that the fact that you mentioned there about you get to hear the real stories I think many of us have experienced the fact that doctors don't really look for the real story because they're very busy and they don't really yeah. want to know the whole story and the whole messy yeah. kind of scenario that you're yeah. going to paint for them. Yeah. So I think what you are doing in educating doctors is as important as how you are treating your patients in, as okay. you said, changing that narrative. Mary, okay. you also have, um, you've, you, and I haven't got to it yet, but you have a chapter also in the book um, on self-esteem. And this is something anybody who's heard you talk uh, in real life, if you like, this is mm. something you're very, I think, strong on, you know. Uh, okay. So tell us a little okay. bit about self-esteem so and hormones. I suppose I've seen a lot of women and men coming into me with hormone imbalance and exhausted, tired. And always after examining them and, and uh, you know, listening to them and do, looking at everything, I sit down and say, tell me about your day. And these could be people that are high achievers of, you know, accountants. They could be teachers, whatever. But the story is always the same. They're very high professional self-esteem, but their personal self-esteem is rubbish. So to give an example, you might have a woman who um, gets up at five o'clock to do a run, even though she's exhausted. I mean, energy levels are two out of ten. Mm. Then she makes the breakfast, makes the lunches for the teenage kids instead of getting them to make them themselves. Then she goes in, does a day's work, comes home, picks up everyone, takes them all on the taxi for their activities mm. and never once asks a partner for help or asks the children for help or all teenagers. 
And the person there that's at fault is the woman because she has a low self-worth and low self-esteem. She's running herself into the ground. Hormones are all over the place. But she, if she had a high self-esteem, she wouldn't be doing that. So we have to educate women and men to have a high self-esteem, particularly women, because I don't think women have been part of society as much as men. And, and that goes back to generations because I would have you know, heard women coming into me, particularly on COVID. I had one woman saying that she had three brothers that are living on a farm and she was 15 miles away. Way. She never asked the boys to do anything, but only asked her who was 15 miles away, and she really resented it. Yeah. So there is a bit of to change mothers' thinking, and that it's only the girls' duty to care. It's 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 an equal duty. Both are reared. Yeah. So we have to change, do a lot of education on that, but we also have to get people to realise they're unique and it's up to all of us to realise our power mm. and to love ourselves and loving ourselves meaning say no, have the boundaries and if women and men do that then you won't burn out then you'll eat healthily. The amount of women that skip breakfast is unreal Barbara That's because like, they're yeah. racing around and exercise is brilliant but not when you're exhausted. We will always say to patients when you're exhausted, stroll by all means, you can get back to. But getting up at five o'clock in the morning, um, you know, doing a run when your energy is two out of ten instead of ten out of ten, is going to achieve nothing. Mm. So it's all about, you know, listening to your body, pacing while you're tired, and then by all means, go back and run when you're back up to it. But also asking your teenage kids to help out, your husband or partner to help out as well. And having the um, self-esteem and the, you know, self-worth to do that and you're empowering your children as well because if they see you running they're in turn going to run themselves down the road you know and they're going to not look after themselves so we have a big mentor role as well but I particularly see it in women and the amount of times I hear the same story for women is unbelievable so I suppose that's why I say I say it that we really have to look at self-esteem in women and when I see young girls coming into me with their lips done and they're only 14 and 15 and I say to them why do you do that to yourself? Mm-hmm. You're gorgeous looking. You didn't need your lips done. And they they look at me as if they've never heard it before. Yeah. And I said that to a psychologist and he said, because mothers don't like to tell their daughters that they're fa- fabulous looking for fear they get above themselves. This is the thinking. And I said, but that's mad, you know. Yeah. So I suppose it's only by us talking like that that we're going to change things. Well, this we've, is, we've got a lot of these intergenerational habits that we need to get rid of. You yeah, know? no, this is what I think is so important. And I think also when you're talking about the care thing, I know as well, there's an awful lot of women, older women who get sucked into being the only sibling caring for the elderly parents you know which is the same thing so we do need men to step up to the plate a little bit more on all of that and and ask mothers not to rely on just on their daughters but to rely on their sons as well sure we did change them as well listen you are one of my favourite kinds of of feminist uh, uh, Mary Ryan because you are so relentlessly positive when you're talking (laughs) and that's it's infectious you're like plugging into an electric socket I'll go away thinking yes I'm fabulous now after hanging up from you Mary I know you're so busy and I wish you the best to look with the book I'm sure it'll fly off the shelves I really appreciate it Alison thank you for taking the time that was Dr Mary Ryan and her book is called It's Probably Your Hormones don't go away back after this and you're welcome back to Late Lunch. Right, our movie competition, we have some winners. If you were listening earlier, you'll know that LMFM, along with the Arc Cinema, are hosting a private screening of the Super Mario Brothers movie in the Arc Cinema Drogheda on Wednesday, the 19th of April at 6.30pm. And the winner of the tickets today are Anne Hill from Drogheda, Kathleen Black from Drogheda and Lisa Collier from Termin Fecken. We will be in touch with you all to let you know how we can get those tickets to you. So there'll be more tickets to give 
give away tomorrow and in fact every day this week so don't move the dial stay tuned to LMFM for all of that now it is time for this five four three two one counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear and today it's 2007 uh, is the year and we're starting at number four this week because we are off for Good Friday and our song today is The Sweet Escape by Gwen Stefani. This song was written by Stefani, Akon and Giorgio Tunfort and it is an apology for a fight between two lovers and describes a dream of a pleasant life for them. Wouldn't we all love that? A pleasant life. It reached top ten in most singles charts and it topped the New Zealand singles chart. It was nominated for Best Pop Collaboration with Vocals at the 50th Grammy Awards. So, enjoy this. This is Gwen Stefani and The Sweet Escape. And welcome back. Now, one of my very favourite musicals ever, ever, ever is Joseph and His Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and it is being performed by St Mary's Musical Society at the Solstice Arts Centre in Navan from the 19th of April. And joining me to tell me all about it and to seek help for a wee bit of an issue they might have is David Monaghan, who is the production manager. How are you doing, David? I'm grand, Barbara. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's great to talk to you and it's brilliant to talk about genuinely, I'm not just saying that, the Joseph and His Amazing Technicolor drink coat. I am old enough to remember when it started, when it was first started the rounds. Started the rounds in Dublin in 19, I looked it up 1974. You were probably not even born by then. Do you know something? I was about days old. We're just one with days Barbara. Days. Okay, yeah. fair. I was days old as well, but it was a lot of days old. But um, <laughs> yeah, Exactly. We won't go into that. <laughs> no, Listen, no. My heart skipped a beat there when you said I'm going to be talking about one of my favourites. I thought you were talking about me, not the show. Well look, I'll tell you that at the end, when we're That's done with the enough. interview. You have to, you know, there'll be a couple of things, tests you have to pass first. I have to prove myself. You have to I prove Barbara? yourself. I don't give out those kind of accolades for nothing, David. Though. You know what I mean? There you go. There you go. Anyway, um, yes, we're delighted to be putting it on. It's one of my favourite shows as well, Barbara. Very popular with audiences, as you can imagine. Because yeah. There's so many musicals out there at the moment. So many new, fabulous musicals. But this is one of the older ones. As a great like Irish connection, because Tony Kenny sang the original "Any Dream Will Do," and I had a huge hit with it. And he being Irish and all the rest. So he did. You know. He did. He did. And he was a brilliant. Produ- I mean, I can. I went to see. My mother was a nutcase, bless her. And um, she. You mean that in the nicest I do, way. I yeah. do. But I mean, anybody yeah. who knew her knew she was a messer. But we went to see one of the first runs of Joseph and his, and his amazing technical drink coach with said Tony Kenny. And yeah. do you remember who played the Pharaoh in those first ones? I don't. See, there I, you go. You're not my favourite now anymore, David. Um, who was it? Caro Doherty from up in Northern Ireland somewhere. He was in the Gentry originally and he played the Pharaoh which as you know was played as a kind of an Elvis role. My mother, my mother who was a happily married woman to my father fell madly in love with uh, Cara Doherty which is why I think we went to see Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat every, at least once, sometimes twice. Oh I wasn't dragged. I loved it all. I loved it all. So how are preparations going? Preparations are excellent. We've had um, lots of rehearsals there now three and four times a week we're on starting Wednesday two weeks the 19th and it's it's really come on well uh, it's nearly you're afraid to say you know yourself Barbara you're yes. afraid to say it's it's very advanced at this stage we're normally a week in a week away from the show thinking yeah we're nearly there but we're actually two and a bit weeks out and we're nearly there so that's all good that's brilliant and you've had some some previous famous members of your society who went oh, on we to have, the West yes. End and stuff yes. so this is a serious yes. society we have yeah yeah we have um, 
we've had uh, Killian Donnelly. Uh, you, you're familiar with Killian. You've yeah. had him on your shows over there numerous times. And uh, Killian started off with St Mary's it's Musical hilarious. Society. Brilliant. Um, you know, so like I mean, and we've had we've had plenty of others as well. But he's he's done probably the best, the best. Of, of all the, the lot. He was he just retired from Phantom. He's been playing Phantom oh, wow. for the last two years over there in the West End. On the West End, yeah, right. Well, very good. So we'll see who the breakout star maybe is from from um, this uh, Joseph. Now, come here. I believe you have a bit of a problem. I. Barbara, if you if you pardon the pun, I'm looking for four men. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. Well, but I you're not just looking for, for four men. Different reason than you're <laughs> looking for them, Barbara. Can I just um, put it out there? I'm not looking for. Uh, one man is plenty enough for me. Thanks very much indeed. And four times trouble. Yeah. Um, we need four lads to come on stage, and it's only a cameo role. They have to carry on a small little, not a chariot, just kind of a throne on on legs, for want of a better word, and uh, then drag Joseph off to jail. They're on stage for about three or four, maybe even five minutes. Uh, two or three rehearsals will do them and then obviously the run of the show Now what we do you need, need though you don't you need a particular type of man I'm thinking well, for this do you? Them. They're going to be topless Woo. Settle Barbara Settle The excitement uh, in Navin Mac <laughs> Topless men Carry on I have the front seat booked especially for Great you. I'll be there <laughs> Um, yes, we need them to be in somewhat a shape. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to ask you to qualify that. What does somewhat a shape mean? Beer bellies need not apply. Okay, that's that's fairly blunt. Okay, absolutely. And I apologise to all my friends, <laughs> Beer Belly Association. But um, no, we need four, four lads. Uh, age doesn't matter. Over eighteen. Um, you need hunks. That's what you're saying. You need well, kind of buff hunks. Well, you see, that might put a few of your average guys, which will to fit the job very very well but yeah preferably if we get four hunks Barbara and if you know four from Drogheda if you have four there in the linen cupboard you're not using Jeez, I'll check on the way out of studio course. here I'll go through the offices here on the way out and see if there's anybody I think might fit the bill and if they're all looking at you going why is she looking me up and down now they'll know now what you're looking for <laughs> <laughs> and listen if you found a big strong woman would she do? Uh, four strong women would no. do absolutely would they? Yeah, I'm not sure that they would have had um, lady soldiers back in Joseph's time, but we're open to adoption. There you go. Bring it all up to date. Absolutely. Now, I'd have to go and vet those out personally myself. <laughs> that wouldn't be your job, Barbara. You can look after the men. I was going to apply myself. I'm six foot. Do you know, I reckon I could drag Joseph off to jail. No bother. I'm sure you could. And what about the show? <laughs> I could drag that off into the depths as well. Everybody be looking for the foot barber. You can drag most of us off to the, the jail. Never mind Joseph. I know that's a bit mean. Yeah, no, not at all. I'm just saying you're well fit and well able for it. We have an excellent cast, Barbara. Just have yeah. to give them a quick mention. Please. Susan Fitzsimons is very well known around Navin. Fabulous soprano, beautiful singer. Has sang in church choirs and shows and all around the place. Has had her own shows and places. She's doing the narrator, which is one of the lead parts. And then Joseph is played by a young chap from Dublin called Shane Lavelle. And Shane has been in plenty of shows in the concert hall. Oh. Um, and things like that. He was in The Sound of Music, I think, last Christmas in the concert hall. So we've really, really good. Most of the cast are from Navan or the surrounding areas and have been with St Mary's over the last number of years. So we're delighted that most of them are our own.
Brilliant. Look, it sounds great. And as I said at the top, I genuinely mean it. It's a, if you haven't seen Joseph, it's a great yeah. show. The music is great, but there's comedy in it as well, Brilliant. which makes it Brilliant. a really fun night out. And I mean, it's suitable for all ages, isn't it? Absolutely. Have... Well, we've, 20, we've 21 children in the show. So yeah, as you can appreciate from that, then it definitely is. There's an awful lot of musicals, it, you know, you'd have to say it wouldn't be over suitable for children. There'd be more of the darker ones. This is not that. This is definitely a family show and a great crack for young and old. This is great. How do people get tickets and more information, David? Uh, more, they can go online to uh, salsasartcentre.ie yep. and they can actually get all the information there and they can actually book the tickets there if they want. Brilliant. Absolutely. And how long is it going to run for, do you think? It's running from the 19th, Wednesday the 19th, this Wednesday two weeks, until Sunday the 23rd. Now, it's a nightly show, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, sorry, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And it's a Sunday afternoon. We finish with a matinee at 2.30 on the Saturday. Lovely. On Sunday, on the Sunday. Lovely. So well, the it's the 19th to 23rd, Barbara. Fantastic. Listen, it was a joy to talk to you, David. And I wish Absolutely. you the best of luck. Break legs all over the place. And I hope you have a great run and launch maybe another star over onto the West End. That is Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat at the Solstice Arts Centre in Navan. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Don't go away. Eddie Caffrey is on next. I am here again tomorrow at one thirty. He raises you. And uh, we're going to leave you with Forget Me by Lewis Capaldi. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.